Welcome to episode 94 of the Historic Performance Podcast featuring Mike Cantrell, faculty member at the Pastoral Restoration Institute. Following the completion of his master's degree in physical therapy from Emory University School of Medicine, Mike opened up the Cantrell Center in 1992. Despite currently being a faculty member for the Pastoral Restoration Institute, he initially was quite skeptical. As the story has it, yeah. So I walked into the class and I sat down. I needed some credit hours and I wanted to learn how this device called a protonic system worked. And the inventor, a guy named Ron Horeska, who's he? I don't know. So I go into this class and it was in Texas. I'm almost positive. And um, I walked into the class, sat down and he started saying some things that just flew in my face. And I was like, OK, wait a minute. I didn't learn that in PT school. What the heck? So he would make a point. He would say, you know, A plus B equals X. And it wasn't so much that I didn't believe what he was saying because I realized there was a sniff of truth underneath everything he was saying. I just wanted him to connect the dots better. So I was getting like red in the face. I was like, wait a minute. You can't just say A plus B equals X and expect me to walk away all happy. I want to know how A plus B equals X. It wasn't that I didn't believe it equals X. I wanted to know how it equaled X. Well, you know, he was like saying to himself, okay, this guy's interested, and, and he was right. It was probably the understatement of the year. I was fascinated, and so I kept going back, being not the sharpest tool in the shed. I had to go back and hear more, so I kept going back and going back and going back, and he's like, oh, well, Mike, I see you're here again, huh? I'm like, yes, I'm here again. Now, let's get going. That is Mike Cantrell describing his initial experiences with Ron Haruska director of the Postural Restoration Institute. And for anyone who has ever met Ron or taken a course with him, you're probably chuckling. Following this initial meeting in Texas, Mike went on to learn from Ron Haruska, and soon he was able to understand how A plus B equals X. So much so that in 2006, he became Postural Restoration Certified. Since then, he has published several papers in an effort to help others understand the difficult concepts of PRI. This leads us to today's episode, where Mike is going to discuss the research and science behind PRI, why we develop asymmetries and their implications, and how PRI can be integrated into performance. Enjoy the conversation. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I would like to extend a warm welcome to any new listeners of the podcast. Today, I am joined by Mike Cantrell. He is a faculty member at the Postural Restoration Institute. I'm really happy to have him on to discuss PRI. Mike, how are you doing today? Doing fantastic. I'm kind of glad to be here and looking forward, James, to a good kind of uh, exciting dialogue as we exchange the ideas about posture restoration, because it, it's, a, it's a jazzy way to look at people, and I think you'll dig it too. Agreed, Mike. I've been looking forward to this podcast episode, and I know that many others have been as well. The difficulty that I face as a host today is that people listening to this podcast have either been exposed to PRI in the sense that they've heard about it or attended courses, or they have absolutely no clue what PRI is. So I'm going to try to phrase the questions in a way that provides interesting dialogue for both parties. I hope that comes across throughout the conversation. Every episode needs a starting point, and a good starting point for today would be, Mike, how would you describe PRI to someone that has never heard about it? 
Yeah, if I was if I was riding up to the twelfth floor on the elevator and somebody gets on with me and says, "Hey, I heard you're into this PRI stuff. What exactly is PRI?" and you've got eleven floors now to discuss it, you know, that's it's sort of a challenge because you know I get asked that a lot on an airplane when I'm carrying body parts on a plane, and they'll ask you, you know, what do you do? Uh, you know, that that prompts you to carry a pelvis with some femurs attached. And um, you know, sometimes I I will just crack a joke and move on. Other times I'll I'll lay it out. But I think in a in in a nutshell, postural restoration is nothing more than biomechanics and understanding biomechanics and human kinetics and movement from the perspective that humans are asymmetrical and that asymmetry is not accounted for anywhere else in any other school of thought. So I, I get a little bit bothered when someone says, you know, I, I, I like the PRI system, you know, and, and this system of, it's not a system. It's like saying, I like anatomy. I like the anatomy system. You know, it's not, anatomy is not a mechanism of treating something. Anatomy is a noun. And so PRI is a noun in my mind. It is, it is an understanding that humans are asymmetrical. And that when you approach a human and recognize his asymmetry, you, you, the first thing you say is, okay, well, all humans are asymmetrical. That can't be a problem, can it? And you say, no, it's not. However, the way humans compensate for that asymmetry can create problems. And usually if you can minimize that compensatory strategy, that comes in, in several packages, a neurologic package first and foremost, and then secondarily a respiratory package, and then tertiarily would be a, an orthopedic package. I often ask people, well, what do you think? Is this a, does this patient now have a, an orthopedic problem, a neuro, neurologic problem, a pulmonary problem? What is it? And they kind of pause and they go, well, well, I guess it's all of the above. Ding, 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 100% right, all of the above. So it is a compensatory strategy for our asymmetries that leads us down the road of hot water, if you, if you will. And then if we, if we spend a little bit of time teaching people how to account for their asymmetry in a non-damaging way, they will generally see improvement in whatever system they want to apply to this patient. If they're into Graston technique, go do Graston technique. But while you're at it, apply the concept that this individual may need your Graston techniquing because they're accounting for their asymmetry in an unhealthy way. Humans are asymmetrical. The left half is not like the right half, and that can lead to trouble. A good clinician can recognize that with some subjective and objective data. And if you compile the data you'll begin to realize where damage is taking place, what needs to be accounted for, and a treatment strategy to take care of both. Quite a bit of information was just covered within that response. So I want to take a step back. I don't believe anybody will dispute that the human body is asymmetrical. It is well documented. But what is the catalyst for this asymmetry? Ah, okay, that's a, that's a great question. Human asymmetries, there are multiple studies out there that speak to human asymmetry. What the Posture Restoration Institute has spent a lot of time doing, as an institute, is compiling this research. And there are mountains of research, articles from guys like Kuenhoven, who says, 
who's he's in the Netherlands. He he looked at uh, and is still looking at pre-existent spinal curvatures. And basically, what he's saying, Kuhnhoven is saying, hey, everybody has a spinal curve to the right. Isn't this interesting? A thoracic lumbar convexity curvature to the right. Everybody has one. And he's saying this is pre-existent, meaning prior to prior to really becoming upright and walking, we're seeing lateralization. There are also multiple studies on cerebral hemispheric lateralization. In other words, neurologically, we are hardwired to be asymmetric. We know that our cerebral motor cortex on the left side is a busier motor cortex for control of bodily function on the right side than vice versa. Then our right brain is our left side. There are multiple studies on language lateralization. And in the speech pathology world, speech pathologists are well aware that the human cerebral cortex creates right-sided lateralization of human bodies. So there are tons of articles, even articles that speak to treatment of spinal curvatures through respiration. Some great studies by a guy named Obayashi who said in Japan, hey, you know, everybody seems to be lateralized to the right. Humans are not symmetrical. And by the way, if you do respiratory training on these individuals, you can affect spinal curvatures. Now, he was looking at sagittal. We now realize we can look at sagittal plane and frontal plane and transverse plane, like the Schroth method of treating spinal curvatures looks at. Because Schroth also realizes humans aren't symmetrical. So there's mountains and mountains of literature out there that speaks to human asymmetry. It starts neurologically from a hardwired brain, and then we look at pulmonarily. The lungs, for example, there are three lobes of lung on the right, two lobes of lung on the left. There's a vagus nerve on the right that's longer than the one on the left. There's a thoracic duct on the right that is more restricted in flow than the one on the left. We know that their triangular sterni, the muscle on the back of the front of your rib cage, is a muscle that helps you exhale. We know that we don't exhale as well on the left, the side that has two lobes of lung, and we have extra triangular sterni muscle on the left side to aid in exhalation. We're not even symmetrical in the muscles that help us exhale. We also know that that then affects ribcage position. In other words, if I have muscles that don't exhale or if I have a difficulty with exhalation on one side, the left, compared to the right, we also know then that that diaphragm is more tonic on the left. It's flatter as though it has already inhaled. We know that there's a heart sitting on top of that diaphragm, keeping that diaphragm pushed down and flatter on the left side. So loss of a zone of apposition on the left compared to the right is common. It is the standard. It's the norm because there's a liver on the right side holding the diaphragm up into what we call a proper zone of apposition, ZOA. That's not a PRI term. That is a pulmonary term that has been well-researched and well-documented in literature. For example, we know that Paul Hodges has done tons of studies on ZOA assessment and management, and, and Mr. Hodges points out, he's been actually been a guest speaker for PRI, he points out that, gee, you know, if you want to engage and create a zone of apposition on someone, you must have activity of transversus abdominis and vice versa. Well, that's kind of fascinating. We also know that for lower extremity movement, you have to have a zone of apposition. But it's difficult to account for a zone of apposition and lower extremity movement if you're not symmetrical, which means your body has to immediately compensate for that lack of symmetry. It's a mind-bending thing because there are so many 
positions and situations in which our asymmetry comes to light, and the research is endless on the subject. Now that we understand a little bit more about the possible cause of human asymmetries, I want to go back to the subjective and objective data that you mentioned, which can account for asymmetries and then develop a treatment plan. What would that subjective and objective data collection look like? Okay, the, you know, some of the number one objective tests. First, what you have to do is you have to break down an individual into segments, not because you need to do that for <clears throat> testing, but because you need to do that for your own learning. So we teach PRI in sections. And we teach about a chain of muscle that's bound together that basically works as a team called the anterior-interior kinetic chain, which basically takes care of diaphragm down. Then we have a brachial chain, which takes care of diaphragm up to the neck. And then we have a temporomandibular cervical chain, which takes care of neck up to the top of your head. And these three batches of muscle, if you will, we call polyarticular chains of muscle. Well, PRI didn't invent polyarticular chains. They've been around since Christ was a corporal. What PRI did was name some chains, both left and right side, the AIC, the anterior-interior kinetic chain, the brachial chain, and the temporomandibular cervical chain, left and right side. And what we realize is with greater activity of one side or the other, there should be tests that reflect that. You can look at primary tests, for example, an adduction drop test, which is commonly known as an Ober test, that reflects nothing more than position of a pelvis and subsequent dominance of one chain, left side, over another chain, the right side in my example. So there would be tests, and those tests, like the, this adduction drop test, can reflect position of a pelvis. And then consequently, you have other tests that will reflect positions of pelvises as well. For example, a straight leg raise test, which appears to be examining a hamstring's length. Many times what you will see are reasons why, or you'll see differences in straight leg raise. Well, it doesn't suggest that the lesser of the two leg raises requires more hamstring flexibility. What it suggests is an abnormally positioned pelvis. Another test might be what we call an extension drop test, which is commonly learned as a, a Thomas test. And so this extension drop test is testing the anterior capsule of a hip joint. Well, it's testing the integrity of that anterior capsule. And what we know is that objectively what we should see is a femur that does not approach the testing surface when you do an extension drop test. That would be listed in, in regular learning, non-PRI learning, as a positive test. So PRI adopts the same name. A femur that doesn't approach the surface upon which it's tested is a positive test. A femur that does approach the surface upon which it's tested is called a negative test. Well, what we learn in school, for example, is that that positive test is a bad thing and requires some stretching of a hip flexor. What we learn in PRI is that is nothing of the sort. And in fact, a positive test is a good thing in the case of an extension drop test or that Thomas test, and that it does not require stretching of a hip flexor, but alteration in the position of a pelvis because it's reflective of a malpositioned pelvis or a pelvis that's oriented in one direction versus another. So consequently, a negative test then suggests, well, wait a minute, something must be lax or slack 
that's allowing that femur to approach the surface upon which it's being tested. If that's the case, then we have a problem, not a good thing. So you see, it's a, it's a complete juxtaposition of what we've originally learned as students going through our schooling, our education. There's other tests, trunk rotation, femoral rotation. All of those are assessing the, the two red flags on the mailbox called legs, and the mailbox is your pelvis. So it's telling us whether or not your pelvis is in a certain position and what you've damaged to manage that pelvis position. In the brachial chain, we're looking at two other red flags on the mailbox called arms that are attached to a rib cage via a uh, scapula. And so we're looking at rotation of those arms. And then that gives us data and information in an objective way about the position of a rib cage and subsequently the two scapulas that are attached. Finally, we'll look at a neck and we'll understand neck movement as the, as the final red flag to give us an idea about position of the neck and the head on the neck to tell us about what the temporomandibular cervical chain of muscle is doing. And then what we want to do is understand, based on our objective findings, what this person that is being examined is doing to manage his human asymmetries and what he's damaged in the process and where should we begin our treatment. For example, do I need to start at that pelvis? Do I need to start at those feet? Do I need to start at that neck? Do I need to start in his mouth? Do I need to start in his chest? Where do I need to begin my treatment? Is the dog wagging the tail or is the tail wagging the dog? And these objective tests can help me understand that. The next area that I want to cover is terminology used by PRI that certain individuals may be unfamiliar with. One of them which doesn't come from PRI but PRI does use is zone of apposition or ZOA. What is a ZOA? Perfect. Great question. So a zone of apposition, think of it as the dome to your diaphragm. Now, if I, was, if I had a chalkboard in front of me, I'd be drawing pictures and showing you slides and all of that. And anybody can go online and look up the word zone of apposition and get a very crystal clear image. But what I want you to think of, and, and our listeners here can think of, think of it like this. When your diaphragm is at rest, it forms a dome. And when your diaphragm is engaged, that dome begins to flatten. In other words, the diaphragm begins to contract. And like the shutters of a lens on a camera, as it flattens, it, they kind of overlap on themselves as the diaphragm flattens down, pulling through its central tendon. And so that creates a vacuum, obviously, and air comes in. In order to inhale efficiently, your diaphragm has had to have come from a position of full exhale. That kind of makes sense. In order for me to bend my elbow, it had to be straight at one point. I can't bend it if it's already bent. So in order to inhale, I have to have exhaled. Well, immediately, if we know we're asymmetric and we know we've got a diaphragm that has a better ZOA on the right because I'm a human, then I know immediately that my left has a, has a diaphragm that isn't as domed, has less of a ZOA. And so many times, individuals will begin to compensate for that lacking ZOA on one side and that inability to then fully dome that left diaphragm. So it's difficult for these individuals to create ribs on the left that must be in a position called internal rotation on the anterior side. That's what creates the dome. I think we're on a very good path here because we're currently talking about the diaphragm. For a lot of strength coaches that may know about PRI, I think what they've been exposed to are 
individuals getting into certain positions and then breathing. And they're probably wondering, what is this breathing doing in order to manage some of these asymmetries? Why breathing? Um, well, let's start first with something basic like a concept called walking. If I walk and I load on my right side, in other words, I'm in stance phase of gait on the right side. Under normal circumstances, my pelvis on the right, my right hemipelvis, should be extended and then adducted at the inlet and internally rotated, that right innominate bone, that right hemipelvis. At the same time, now that's facilitated sagittally by, by a hamstring that's engaged. At the same time, in that position, my pelvis should be rotated around the ball of my femur in that ball and socket joint on the right side. Now that requires, after that, above that, leftward trunk rotation. Because if my pelvis is oriented to the right, I then must turn my pel or my rib cage back to the left at around the level of T8, which is equal to the dome of the diaphragm. In order for that to happen, my internal obliques and transversus abdominis have to engage on the right side. That internally rotates my ribs and rotates me to the left. Hooray, I'm in right stance. Wait a minute, Mike, are you telling me that right stance requires internal rotation of my ribs? You're telling me that rib cages dictate stance? Yes, that's exactly what I'm telling you. And this is irrefutable. It's everywhere in the literature. You can watch somebody walk and realize they've got to rotate their torso when they walk. Without torso rotation, walking is now compensatory. Okay, so now let's go to the left side. In left stance, I should see the same thing. A pelvis that is now extended, internally rotated, and adducted now on the left with the opposite happening on the right hemipelvis. Well, then that requires rightward rotation of my torso at about T8 with internal rotation of my left ribs. Okay, now that would be a reciprocal movement of my rib cage and an alternating of that reciprocation of my rib cage. Ribs going from external rotation to internal rotation, external rotation to internal rotation, and taking turns with the other side. So now if I incorporate that into the sport world, if I have an individual who utterly cannot internally rotate his left ribs, I might want to consider spending some time teaching them how. Because then when it comes performance time, they may find that they can perform better, be it endurance or uh, agility and things like that, or even power. They're going to find that they can do better once they're in touch with both sides of their body. But that doesn't seem like a big extrapolation to me. Hey, if I run with both legs, I might run better. Hey, if I run with both lungs, I might run better. Hey, if I run with both rib cages, having the ability to reciprocate, I-R-E-R, I-R-E-R, I might run better. It's not a big stretch to me. And it shouldn't be for your listeners. I actually have a, a follow-up question on that because... Having gone to conferences, having talked to fitness coaches, one of the things that always gets brought up is, all right, athletes are great at compensation. And part, part of this is that these compensations have made them elite athletes. So if they're not in pain, why should I be manipulating their compens compensatory patterns? What are your thoughts regarding that matter? But yeah, it's like, if they ain't broke, why fix it, right? They seem to be doing okay. 
you know, I might be standing up in that line with you going, hmm, you know, they seem to be doing okay. Why should I mess with that? A good case in point is, uh, who's the sprinter, Usain Bolt? Great runner, runs fast as heck. Why do I want to screw with success? He seems to be doing well. And I'd probably be the first one to go, hey, if you want to mess with him, you mess with him. I'm not touching him. He's got a good plan going. However, on the flip side of that, we might take a look at somebody like Tiger Woods, the golfer. So he's been golfing and he was crushing it. He was doing really, really well. But then he began to develop first some knee troubles. Then he began to develop some low back issues. Now, I'm sure there's a million different clinicians out there that would love to get their hands on him and, and you know, have a go at trying to get him a little bit better than he was or is. You know, maybe you and I are standing in that line saying, boy, I sure would like a crack at him. But um, what I would say is, wouldn't it have been interesting if you could take an individual like a Tiger Woods or an Usain Bolt and tinker with them a little bit and teach them how to reciprocate ribcage movement, reciprocate pelvis movement, and teach them how to alternate and see if they wouldn't do a little bit better with their performance that is already darn good. In the case of Tiger Woods, who knows? Now, I could say anything I want right now. I could say, boy, in the case of Tiger Woods, we'd have had him fixed. He'd have never had problems. And at that point, I would call me out if I were you. I would say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, Cantrell. You can't be running off in the mouth like that. And I would totally agree with you. So I would never say that. What I would say is I sure would get a kick out of having a crack at that with the hope that I might be able to have circumvented some of the troubles that he developed. It'd be fun to have a crack at a Usain Bolt, but frankly, he's doing really, really well, and I don't think I would touch him with a 10-foot PRI because the guy seems to be doing fine. Why mess with success? To get back to the theme of terminology, one term that I hear a lot is neutrality. What does it mean for an individual to be neutral. Okay, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm an instructor for the Posture Restoration Institute. I've been instructing for the Institute since 2005 and a half, really 2006, let's just say. So that's about what? That's, that's a long time. And, and during all that time, I've had multiple discussions on the concept of neutrality. And this instructor for the Posture Restoration Institute is going to tell you right now that if someone decides that they want to achieve neutrality on their client, and then pop a champagne bottle and say, success, I'm going to say, slop. Because achieving neutrality is slop. Achieving neutrality is not and does not constitute a successful program. It constitutes a successful first step in a program. But by definition, all neutrality is, is the absence of laterality, the absence of an obligatory position. Let me give you an example. You may have a child, an infant, who has an asymmetrical tonic neck reflex. We all, all humans have uh, primitive reflexes that integrate as we age. They don't disappear, they integrate. If those positions, those reflexes, excuse me, if those reflexes become obligatory, a child may have problems with movement. An example of that is the asymmetrical tonic neck reflex. It's also referred to in casual terms as the common name fencing posture. If I take a baby of a certain age, rotate his head in one direction, he's going to bend the opposite elbow and straighten the same side arm. If I turn his head to the left, for example, he'll bend his right elbow and straighten his arm, flex his right leg and straighten his left. 
It's very common, and I think I'm naming it right. Now, there may be some pediatric therapist listening to this spinning in their grave right now because I've labeled it incorrectly. But the point is, this asymmetrical tonic neck reflex is present in children, and when they reach a certain age, it goes away. It It didn't vanish. It's still present, but it's integrated. It doesn't become obligatory anymore. In other words, if I turn their head, they don't immediately have to bend one elbow straight in the other one. But sometimes kids don't integrate their reflexes. And when they do, you start to see changes in their posture. They start developing a spinal curvature that becomes too big. They start developing a flat skull on one side because their ATNR, their asymmetric tonic neck reflex, won't integrate. It's still obligatory. So what I would want to do for that baby is get them neutral, meaning get them out of that obligatory position through neurologic and respiratory integration. Teach them how to find the position that is no longer obligatory and teach them how to get them out of the position that's obligatory and get them into a non-obligatory position called, I'm not stuck in any position. I am neutral. That is the definition of neutrality per Mike Cantrell, and it's a long-winded definition. So it's the absence of an obligatory position. Once that position of obligation is gone, I can then teach them how to do something with it to aid them in keeping it, quote-unquote, gone. Now let me give you examples of that. The best example of a neutral body is sort of like saying, hey, look, I just bought James Darley a new car. And it's sitting out in the driveway. Wow, look at that shiny, nice car. Keys. Oh, wait, are you planning on driving that car? And you're going to go, well, duh, yeah. Well, a neutral body is the, essentially the equivalent of a nice brand new car. But if I don't give you the keys to use your new body, what good is a neutral body? It is no good. Well, what's the definition of using that new body? What's the definition of driving that car? Well, the definition of that new body of using it is to actually be able to Go to one side, stand on the right leg, and go to the other side, stand on the left leg. Go back to the right side, stand on the right leg. Go back to the left side, stand on the left leg. With a torso, a rib cage that's turning in opposite directions, and a head and neck that's also able to rotate. If I can pass through the neutral state as I move to one side, and then pass through the neutral state as I move to the other side, wow, now I've got a car I can actually drive around the block in both directions. I like the idea of that because then that limits the amount of probable injuries that I'm going to get or can resolve an injury that I've had and won't go away. One area that we still haven't talked about is patient management and patient management within a sporting environment where there has to be integration between sports medicine and the performance staff. At what point does one hand off an individual that is doing PRI with a sports medicine practitioner, whether that be a physical therapist or athletic trainer, to the performance staff? Let me just speak to it first from from a perspective that I have with regard to patient management. Many times I'll take individuals and I'll work with them because they've got a problem. You know, I heard here or whatever. Work with them on that and get them to a point where they can really drive their new car. Remember that analogy a few minutes ago. So they're at a point where they can really drive their new car. Now, my role begins to morph at that point. And many times what I'll do is is send that patient to individuals wherever they may be from because I see patients from different parts of the country. 
So wherever they're from, I like to send a patient back to that clinician and have them locate a PRI fitness and movement person because that man or woman will be able to take that individual and move them into higher level training. Now, my role, I can do that, but my time is better spent not doing that. My time is better spent in the get them out of trouble phase. And then I like the idea of strength and conditioning specialists and personal trainers as well who've got some experience in this to take these individuals and move them into the next level, which is now higher level gym type workout stuff. And the gym type workout stuff is basically going to take into account that which we've worked so hard to achieve, a pain-free human who's able to move. And that pain-free human who's able to move, we'd like to see that remain when they're doing their workout stuff. There are plenty of ways to make a person faster, stronger, jump higher, and all that jazz. You can teach me about that, James. The point is that you, as, a, as, as someone who may be managing high-level individuals, may say, well, you know, I can, I can kind of account for this PRI jazz as I develop programs for my high-level athletes who may or may not be injured. They're doing well, but I can at least try to keep them doing well by slipping into their program concepts that facilitate mobility. What would be some concepts that you'd want to slip in for uninjured athletes to facilitate mobility? The number one concept that I would like to see people able to do is rotate their trunk to the right. Rotate a trunk to the right. In other words, right trunk rotation demands internal rotation of ribs. You know, if, if, uh, if some guy wants to go into a gym and strengthen, I say, knock yourself out, dude. If he comes in and he says, listen, I'm a bodybuilder and I'm, I'm lifting weights in order to grow muscle, but I have pain when I do it. Okay, that's fine. Looks like you're doing a great job growing muscle. So I'm not going to be the guy who walks up to you and says, oh, well, you need to stop that. Or uh, I'm, I'm a ballet dancer and I've got pain when I do it. Well, I'm not going to tell you to stop ballet dancing. But what I will do is teach you mechanisms where you can continue to grow muscle or you can continue to ballet dance by teaching you in the gym techniques to improve your ability to lift those weights or improve your ability to do the dance that you do, which can be very injurious in both cases, and keep you from getting injured. In other words, do your hobby and let me sweep up the mess behind you. And while you're doing your hobby, let me give you some pointers on how to do your hobby so that I have less mess to sweep up. For strength and conditioning specialists and performance coaches that want to learn more about PRI and how they can integrate it within their training programs, what would be your recommendation? PRI Integration for Fitness and Movement, the course, it is such a good course, and it's taught by two really good instructors. And um, Julie Blandon has a really, really good skill at presenting this information in a usable way. And, and she can juxtapose it with other schools of thought and tell you how PRI can integrate so well with those other schools of thoughts, where, they're, where, the, where they align and where they're opposed, etc. And James... Anderson, um, the way they dovetail that lecture is incredible. And they've got some really, really good gate documents that Julian James and another instructor for the Institute, Louise Kelly, helped create. And um, so um, I, 
I always marvel at how well Julie Blandin can put down that information. She's a dang gum good instructor. She'd probably be worth you having a talk with. At any rate, um, so that fitness and movement course is a standalone course for fitness enthusiasts to come in and learn a little bit about PRI without having to go take 5 million courses and really be able to take and, and, and in turn apply that in the, in the fitness setting. So that's sort of a, an encapsulation of that course, but you may already know that, but some of the listeners may not. For the majority of this episode, we have been talking about the more general concepts of the Postural Restoration Institute, but I want to finalize this podcast by talking about a specific issue that is quite prevalent in soccer players, which is that of hip impingement. There's a common phrase in PRI that says, people seek to impinge. What do you mean by that? A hip impingement. Let's just speak about hip impingement since you brought it up. So a hip impingement is an orthopedic phenomenon. Oh, ouch, my hip is impinging. And then, you know, some, some person may x-ray it or MRI it and say, well, you've got a cam lesion or you've got a pincer lesion, which is nothing more than evidence that you are indeed impinging to the point that Wolf's Law is taking over and you're starting to see some hypertrophic bone growth, etc. That's all well and good. The orthopedic outcome of impingement is bone derangement, changes in the bone. So, and that happens to hurt sometimes. Cam and pincer lesions may not necessarily hurt, but impinging definitely can hurt. And so the reason why the, I say that an individual is seeking to impinge is because what that individual needs to know is, am I stable? Am I in a place of solid positioning? And so one of the mechanisms for that, a, a, a proper mechanism to understand if I'm in a good position is to first and foremost feel grounded. In other words, I feel contact with me on Mother Earth. I am making contact with the ground. And there's plenty of literature that already, that already tells us that, that grounding is a more difficult concept for people on, on a left lower extremity versus a right lower extremity. We also know that through the literature, that people have difficulties with things like left peripheral vision versus right peripheral vision. So that's that asymmetry jazz popping up again. So the reason why I'm bringing it up is because one mechanism to feel grounded is to uh, find reference centers like the bottom of my heel or a right arch, things like that, to help me understand that I am truly grounded. But absent that, I now need a new reference center. Well, many times those reference centers are in the anterior portion of the hip or they are in the subacromial space. They're the medial scapular border. They're a right neck. They're a left TMJ. They're right teeth. There are multiple sites where I might find opportunities to solidify and stabilize my stance. That's why people will seek to impinge in order to solidify and stabilize position. Mike, I want to take a step back. What is a reference center? And why do specific areas of the body act as reference centers? Okay, well, a reference center is nothing more than a neurologic piece of afferent data headed to my brain to tell me where I am in space. So one reference center could be my vision on the horizon. So I'm, I'm using my vision to tell me where I am in space. I can also use touch 
to tell me where I am in space. If I feel my feet on the ground, I know that I'm probably standing up. Uh, one good experiment is to understand what happens to individuals when they're in outer space because they tend to lose reference centers and start having symptoms like vertigo. One of the things to help them keep their vertigo down is pressure exercise on devices that offer them resistance. So you'll see people using um, leg pumping devices to, quote, exercise, when really what they're doing is exercising the demons of vertigo. So because that gives them some sense of grounding. So when I mention reference centers, there are several, multiple, multiple reference centers that are a very positive and good thing. For example, a left calcaneal tuberosity, a left heel is a good reference center. A right arch is a good reference center. The left anterior hip with activation of a glute medius on the left is a great reference center. Feeling airflow into my right ribcage lateral side or my left posterior ribcage is an excellent reference center. Feeling left molar to molar contact is an excellent reference center. Those specific reference centers that I just named tell me that my body is in a position called left stance through the good graces of a right anterior interior kinetic chain, a left brachial chain, and a left temporomandibular cervical chain. And if I, can if I can isolate those reference centers, I'm going to then suddenly make the discovery that I don't happen to hurt as I struggle to achieve this concept called left stance position. Mike, I know that we're uh, coming short on time here. I don't want to keep you much longer. So I, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. If anybody has any questions, what's the best way they can reach out to you? Probably uh, through my email, and that's... Uh, P-R-E-S, kind of an abbreviation for the word president. So it's P-R-E-S at Mike Cantrell, P-R-C, like posture restoration certified, dot com. So prez at Mike Cantrell, P-R-C dot com. Fantastic. I'm going to make sure to link down the show notes. Greatly appreciate you taking the time out of a busy afternoon to come on the podcast and uh, talk about the Posture Restoration Institute. Yeah, no problem. If they want to follow on Twitter, it's at Mike Cantrell, P-R-C. Fantastic. Mike, have a great day. All right. Thanks, James. You take it easy, buddy. Thanks for listening to today's podcast episode. Next week on the Historic Performance Podcast, Dr. Anna Saw, research fellow at Deakin University, talks about the evidence behind athlete self-report measures, how it can be implemented, and the role of self-report measurement in athlete preparation. If you listen to this podcast on iTunes, I'd greatly appreciate it. If you leave a review or rating, helps others discover the show. For today's show notes or any previous podcast episode, make sure to check out the website, historicperformance.net. And for all new podcasts, make sure to follow us on Twitter at Historic Perform. I'll see all of you next week.